This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Olivia Rosenman. This week, to mark the UN's International Press Freedom Day on May the 3rd, we had a conversation with ABC's China correspondent, Bill Bertels. The theme for International Press Freedom Day this year focuses on the media's role in advancing peaceful, just and inclusive societies. That's a role that media in China face significant obstacles in carrying out. Reporters Without Borders describes Chinese President Xi Jinping as the planet's leading censor and press freedom predator and his policies as being aimed at complete hegemony over news coverage and the creation of an international media order heavily influenced by China. Bill has been the ABC's man in China since October 2015, and I spoke to him from the ABC studio in Beijing about what it's like to be a journalist in a country that ranks so poorly for press freedom. China was ranked 176 out of 180 countries in the 2016 World Press Freedom Index. I started by asking Bill what his typical workday looks like. Well, it depends what we're doing. So there isn't a typical day because um, it sort of comes in waves. So sometimes you have a quiet day or even a quiet week where you're basically just in the office, you're doing research, you're doing a few little radio stories, maybe a few phone interviews, but you're not going out and actually meeting with people or filming. Other times, of course, it's intensely busy. And uh, either you're here in Beijing and you're scrambling around the city to do interviews. Uh, The traffic in Beijing is pretty bad, so uh, it actually takes a long time just to get a simple soundbite for, say, the nightly news to come back to the office and actually you know process it Uh, and then you you know you might have to go out i'll give you an example yesterday we did a a piece on north korea now we're not in north korea so we have to do a piece to camera somewhere that at least shows we're in beijing so we can't just go outside the office Uh, we need to go somewhere that's relevant and you can't go to tiananmen square because you're not allowed to film there so we end up driving to the foreign ministry which is really maybe 10 minutes on a bike but because i'm with the cameraman we have a lot of gear We get stuck in traffic. It takes us 40 minutes to get there. We shoot the PTC, which takes five minutes, the piece to camera. And then we get in a cab or in a a DD Uber and uh, it takes us about 25 minutes to get back to the office. So there's a lot of mucking around. Uh, But of course, if we're on the road, then the days are a lot longer. You're starting earlier. You're getting up so you can... uh, you can get uh, shots of, you know, uh, something at sunrise or you're following somebody around, uh, and that's a lot more intense. What's your favourite story that you've reported since you took up the role in October of 2015? One I really did like was covering the Taiwanese presidential elections in January of last year. So a few things. First of all, it was an uphill battle just to get uh, ABC uh, to approve the trip. 
I had to push pretty hard to convince uh, people uh, back in Ultimo in Sydney to say, yes, Australian audiences are interested in Taiwan. And there is a good reason why we should be going and covering this election. Initially, they were pretty reluctant. So I went over there and it was my first time in Taiwan. And it is such a contrast with the mainland. I tell you what, maybe with southern China, it's not a huge contrast. But with Beijing, it's a different world. Uh, people are so polite, friendly, but of course, they're just so open. Politically, they're open. You can have discussions, you can have debates. The sort of conservatism that lingers over everything involving politics or the media in mainland China is not there in Taiwan. So that was really refreshing. Uh, we gave, I thought, very balanced coverage to both the, uh, the uh, nationalists, the Guomindang, who were losing that election, and the left-wing movement uh, that uh, came to power. Uh, there was such excitement uh, among the, uh, the uh, left-wing movement uh, led by Tsai Ing-wen. There was such disappointment among the, the more conservative uh, political party. And so that was just a really um, refreshing story for me to work on. Uh, probably the other one would be uh, early on I did a, a piece for um, Late Line on the human rights situation for lawyers in China. And uh, I ended up following a, a lawyer down to a prison in the city of Tianjin to try and visit his clients, a fellow lawyer who's behind bars. And uh, we ended up getting detained for a few hours. So <laughs> that was interesting. And the story in the end came together quite well. Very different stories, but both interesting in their own ways. So you talked about covering a story in Taiwan. And are you assigned to cover other countries within East Asia or even Southeast Asia? Yes. Yeah, so there's two of us here. There's the Bureau Chief, Matt Carney, and myself. And uh, we're sort of a hub for China, both Koreas, Taiwan, Hong Kong. But we would also cover countries like Mongolia and Kyrgyzstan and all those border countries, um, right down to, say, Pakistan. You know, Pakistan would fit in the brief of our uh, India correspondent. So we, we basically cover East Asia, but there's somebody in Japan. So we don't often do Japan. However, I did fly up there last year for something. So it's mainly China, but we do get the opportunity to travel around. And uh, obviously, um, China is uh, missing a lot of the elements that make up standard news coverage. There's no elections. There's no open court cases or, or, or sort of independent court cases. There's very limited protest movements. There's not really a thriving civil society of NGO groups. So you don't really have those public debates that you have in other countries. So you take away all those elements. And despite its massive size on a day-to-day -day basis, China doesn't really have a lot of things which uh, constitute conventional news. And for that reason, I'm glad that we do from time to time get to go to Taiwan and Hong Kong and the Korean Peninsula, because there's a, a little bit more happening, which we're able to access there. So talking about those different ways that uh, journalism works, could you describe to me how a politician's press conference works in China? Well, there's not many political press conferences. In fact, you know, you've got China's communist system. So you have seven top leaders and uh, none of them, none of them ever do press conferences. Those seven. Oh, sorry, I tell a lie. The, the number two ranked leader, Li Keqiang, the premier, he does do a press conference once a year. So we may as well start with his once a year press conference. So it's a big event. And uh, there's probably about three, four, maybe 500 journalists uh, who are sitting there in the Great Hall of the People. He's up on a big stage with his translator. It's covered live on the state broadcaster. It's covered live internationally. So it's this huge, huge event. And the questions from the foreign journalists are all screened in advance. 
So I could go along and I could sit there and put my hand up. He's not going to take my question. No way. The questions have all been pre-approved. Uh, they've been workshopped by the, uh, by the Chinese government. And they've decided to pick certain questions and certain journalists. And the journalists nearly always come from the same lot of organizations, uh, one from the American wires, one from the uh, European press, etc. And so uh, it's a real showpiece opportunity for the premier to say things and knows that he's not going to cop any curly questions out of left field. But aside from that once a year event, uh, most other politicians don't hold press conferences. And uh, what you do get occasionally, you get the foreign minister. He'll hold press conferences. He'll uh, sometimes take questions without notice. But uh, it's, you know, it's just not like an Australian press conference. There's a big distance between the, uh, say, the foreign minister and the press. He's up on a stage. There's sort of a, a culture around the press conference which makes it harder to ask follow-up questions, to ask really um, interrogative questions. So... Even if you do get access to these senior people, you're not likely to get anywhere near the sort of answers that you will get in, say, Australia. Last year, a survey conducted by the Foreign Correspondence Club of China found that 98% of respondents said reporting conditions rarely met international standards, with 29% saying that conditions have deteriorated since 2015. Reporters described incidents in which their sources and their local staff are intimidated by authorities. They described growing cases of harassment and obstructions as a major challenge on the job. Some described having been manhandled or forcefully removed from places they were reporting. Others reported being called to unspecified meetings by the State Security Bureau. It all sounds a little terrifying. What's been your experience? Well, it's it's probably not quite as terrifying because um, those sorts of surveys bundle all the worst case incidents together and um, you know make it sound like it's a weekly occurrence. It's not. Um, it depends what you do. I mentioned that when I uh, did this television story uh, on human rights lawyers, I was detained for a, only a, you know, a couple of hours. I was interrogated by the police and then I was set free. But here's the thing. I was filming outside a jail. Now, you're not allowed to film outside prisons in China. There's some, apparently there's some law against it. This uh, does appear to be the case. I went to Shanghai for a different story. We tried to film outside a prison and we were shooed away. So it's not like, you know, there was this deliberate crackdown on me and this human rights lawyer outside this prison. It's more that they see a foreigner with a camera and uh, they say, well, hang on, you know, we're going to detain you and question you. And they certainly asked me all sorts of questions about how I knew this lawyer. What sort of contacts did we have? Could you describe the relationship between you two? Who called who to organize this story? However, you know, I sort of expected that, I guess, if you're doing that type of story. Um, on the whole, there have been times when we turn up and we're simply blocked from, you know, outside of court, for example, we're blocked from filming, we're pushed away. But on the whole, it's not too bad. I would say the biggest problem is uh, not us, but our sources from time to time are intimidated. And this is particularly the case when you're trying to get something on film. And uh, we, had a, we had a woman who's the same story, actually, her husband's in jail and she's become a bit of an activist trying to campaign to get him out of jail. And initially we did an interview with her on camera. But uh, one and a half years later, I'm trying to do a follow up story. And uh, she now seems to think it's too sensitive for her to let us come and interview her. So she um, she's saying that, you know, she's being harassed and intimidated. So that's that's where it really um, cuts in when your sources 
uh, are blocked from talking to you in the first place. You're listening to Fourth Estate. I'm Olivia Rosamann, and I'm speaking to the ABC's China correspondent, Bill Bertels. Some of our listeners may not be aware that the ABC runs a Chinese-language website, australiaplus.cn. It's aimed at a Chinese audience as well as Chinese expats living in Australia. That website came about thanks to a deal signed between the ABC and China's Shanghai Media Group in 2014. That deal was signed on June the 4th, which is a tense day in China. Last year, Media Watch ran a piece on australiaplus.cn questioning if the ABC had sold out to Chinese censorship. The show highlighted several examples of news stories that appeared on the site with parts of them having been censored, such as a news story on Malcolm Turnbull's trip to China, in which the English version included a paragraph on China's expansion in the South China Sea. That paragraph was missing from the Chinese version of the story. Several other examples were highlighted, as well as the fact that some news, such as the Tiananmen anniversary, which you did some great reporting on, Bill, didn't appear at all. AustraliaPlus.cn has also been criticised by China expert Professor John Fitzgerald, who wrote in the Australian Financial Review that Australia Plus not only fails to offer news and current affairs, it also supports China's highest strategic purpose of eliminating reliable sources of news and information once broadcast throughout the ABC International Chinese Service. Now, I don't want to get you fired, Bill, but I like to think <laughs> that you could speak freely on this issue. Is the ABC compromising its values of reporting news accurately and with integrity? Well, you'll see that Media Watch quoted an article that I wrote where I mentioned this. And so uh, I'm really familiar with all these issues. You know, the deal with the Shanghai Media Group, uh, part of what happened with the changes is that the previous Chinese language service, which did include news, ceased to exist. And instead, it, it was replaced by this uh, AustraliaPlus.cn website, which, as you say, is just devoid of news. And um, as MediaWatch pointed out, uh, articles that I had written for ABC or reported for ABC had been translated into Chinese with certain parts censored. So you can imagine how I felt about that. What I do think is positive is that the ABC's um, MD, Michelle Guthrie, did announce a little while ago that this year, at some point, the ABC will restart an independent Chinese language news service. I don't know when that's going to begin. I'm, I'm hopeful it's sometime in the next few months. But uh, I was assured by um, the ABC uh, Corporate Affairs that this new website will be hosted in Australia. Uh, even if it's on Australia Plus, uh, it'll be on a .com.au rather than a .cn. So I think this is a response to concern that Australia Plus uh, .cn, uh, just by the nature of the deal, is compromised. And you just can't have .cn website that reports news in a way that is free of censorship. And uh, the big issue for me is that Australia's uh, Chinese community is is really quite it's it's sizable now. It's big. And particularly a lot of recently arrived migrants, their English uh, maybe not, is not so good or they're just uh, naturally more interested in reading news in Chinese. And so they're gravitating towards all these new Chinese language online services like the Sydney Today, Melbourne Today, Sydney uh, Impressions called Sydney uh, Yinxiang. And these services are all really jingoistic. They're all very pro-Beijing government. They're all, sorry, Chinese government, pro-Beijing foreign policy. And if the ABC and SBS 
don't provide Chinese language news which is fair and impartial to serve this Australian-based Chinese community, then many of them will only really be reading stuff which is uh, basically uh, proxy state media but based in Australia. And so I think that this is the big concern. You really do need good, fair, balanced Chinese language media from the ABC and SBS and whoever else to offset these increasingly pro-PRC, increasingly jingoistic outlets that are based in Australia. In terms of the Chinese government's censorship of its own media and the internet, in 2016, Freedom House ranked China last for the second consecutive year out of 65 countries that represent 88% of the world's internet users. The 2016 World Press Freedom Index ranks China 176 out of 180 countries. It seems to me that there, on one hand, is a sense that China will have no choice but to relax the reins of censorship in the future as the Chinese population continues to become more savvy on the internet and indeed the internet continues to grow. But on the other hand, there is the idea that Xi Jinping has actually really tightened his grip on the media and the internet since he came to power in 2013. How do you see the next few years shaping up with the freedom of media and the internet in China? Yeah, so your point that um, as you get an increasingly middle-class population, uh, many of them exposed to, say, university education abroad, their personal incomes go up, their opportunities to travel go up. Not, I wouldn't say a huge number, but a significant number of well-educated uh, urban-based Chinese are accessing VPN uh, internet services so they can jump over the wall and access, say, Western media. So you're right, as this continues... Uh, these uh, people will demand uh, freer internet. And certainly it's a big issue. People uh, on the whole here don't like the internet censorship. So does that mean that it's an inevitability that the party will liberalise, at least you know, s- partially liberalise these media laws in future years? Not in the short term. I certainly can't see it happening under Xi Jinping, the current president. Um, things have gone backwards a bit in the past few years. Uh, You talk to some of the old hands who have been doing journalism here for 15 or 20 years, they'll all tell you that there's a tightening environment for the media. Uh, I also know that at CCTV, the state broadcaster, uh, there's been a a sort of deluge of people trying to leave. Um, I know people who uh, want to leave CCTV. These are Chinese journalists and producers, but they're told to wait. They've been put on a waiting list because there's too many personnel trying to get out at the moment. And this is because they don't really see a great future in state media. Um, They're a little bit too idealistic, perhaps. They want to try something else. So I don't see this changing in the next five to ten years. Afterwards, though, in the long term, yeah, I would say that pressure will grow for uh, uh, some sort of uh, little-by-little relaxation of censorship policies. But I don't think it's inevitable that this will happen in 20, 30, 40 years. It could take a lot longer. It seems to me that the sequence of events in the USA in the past year or so has really taken the focus of the global media off China. Would you agree with that? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a bad thing. Um, I think, I'll tell you personally, as a journalist over here, it is, it is bloody frustrating because, um, uh, you know, the, the ABC uh, needs to cater to its audience and what its audience is interested in. But um, US politics is far more fascinating than Chinese politics or anything in China. So, and same with European politics. So for that reason, you know, the, the budgets, the assignments generally seem to be going towards um, stories over in those parts of the world. And that, you know, that makes sense. I can understand that. 
But the problem is uh, China, of course, is far more important to Australia than, say, you know, the UK or France when it comes to elections and political issues over in Europe. You know, China is far more um, integrated to Australia now. So we need coverage of China, no matter how dull or boring it appears to be. And this is the real challenge. It's so opaque, the political system over here. Somebody like Donald Trump is far more entertaining, far more interesting, far more easy to debate than Xi Jinping or anybody in the Chinese political system. And even the basic elements of making an online video piece, you need sound grabs, you need experts, you need people to go in front of a camera and to give their opinions. In China, it's just so hard to do that. So it's so much easier to construct a basic story from US politics or from European politics. So I don't know how to... Um, to best resolve this. So we think every day about how to make stories more interesting, what sort of stories from over here will engage people. But I admit it's a really tough sell. How do you, how do you compare a story about seven old men in suits who are the leaders of China, uh, who never do interviews and who are really quite secretive? How do you, how do you pitch that story compared to what's going on with uh, the US or Europe? I, I don't know. It's a daily struggle for us. Well, one story that certainly uh, has made the global headlines is the meal that President Xi Jinping shared with Donald Trump, <laughs> including some particularly nice steak and chocolate cake, I believe. That whole series of events came uh, after February when you wrote a story uh, questioning whether Trump's delay in making a phone call to President Xi Jinping was an indication that relations between the two countries were set for a rough four years. Now, it seems like that's probably not going to be the case. Do you think that Trump's unorthodox leadership style will, in fact, prove to be a great asset in working with China? My judgment is it's not a great asset for the US. So before the election, uh, the Chinese leadership, not that they publicly state these things, but you got the sense from uh, both uh, talking to people on the street, but also, say, reading the state media, uh, that they were fairly optimistic about Trump and that they thought his threats of a trade war were bluffing. And they thought uh, this sort of bombastic stuff about, uh, you know, stopping China in the South China Sea from, you know, developing more military bases. You got the impression that in Beijing, the leaders thought, ah, oh, this is all bluff. This is all bluster. And since uh, coming to power, uh, Donald Trump has sort of proven them right. He's already caved in on two or three really big issues. Uh, the first was the one China policy during the period before he was president, after he was elected in the interim. He took a call from the Taiwanese leader and he said, I don't know why the US needs to be bound by the decades old one China policy. In, in the end, uh, he caved and he said, yep, I agree, we're bound by the one China policy. China stood its ground. They said, you know, don't have official contacts with the island of Taiwan. It's ours. Don't deal with them in any official capacity. And Trump caved in. Then, of course, he said that on day one, he would enable China a currency manipulator. He made that statement many times throughout his campaign and he's caved. A little while ago, he said, no, 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 they're not a currency manipulator. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to label them a currency manipulator. Another massive back down from him. Uh, and then more recently, too, I mean, the pressure that he tried to put on uh, China about North Korea, he sort of, you know, backed down. And now he's saying lots of friendly things about uh, China's leader, Xi Jinping, saying we can have a great relationship. So on the surface, it looks like China and the US are kind of working together and they're getting along better than many people predicted. But the way I see it, uh, China is winning on every diplomatic and political front, and it's Trump who keeps making concessions. And it'll be interesting to see after his first term whether or not he's actually been able to gain any concessions from China 
on, say, trade policy or on North Korea, because so far it's hard to see how he's really made any progress that's favourable to the US side. So let's talk more about North Korea, because uh, you've also been covering the most recent rumblings from North Korea. And China is, of course, North Korea's only major ally and has a very different approach to dealing with the country. Part of that is likely born out of necessity. Beijing is just 800 kilometres from Pyongyang, which is very close to a country with nuclear weapons. But while Trump has been calling North Korea a problem that we have to finally solve... President Xi Jinping has urged Trump to exercise restraint. So I want to ask this question in two parts. Firstly, North Korea's missile launches and nuclear tests have been semi-regular occurrences. But what is different now is Trump. So have you noticed any change in atmosphere, any increased tension or nervousness in China on how Trump might destabilise what could be described as a pretty fragile situation in the region? Yeah, yeah, there's definitely um, more nervousness from China. And this is one area where, you know, maybe Trump will be able to enact some sort of change. But already it sort of looks like he's realising how tricky the issue is. Where we are seeing some changes in Chinese behaviour is for a long time, although China has publicly condemned North Korea's missile program and has also signed up now to UN sanctions, there's been a big question about whether China is really enforcing those sanctions. And China is responsible for around about 80 to 90 percent of North Korea's trade. So China's really the only country that counts when it comes to economic sanctions. So since Donald Trump started applying more pressure, it does appear that China is doing more to stop coal exports from North Korea coming into Chinese ports. And it seems China is now ratcheting up pressure to uh, maybe threaten North Korea with further sanctions or further enforcement of sanctions, maybe on providing North Korea with oil or maybe on North Korea's airlines. Um, does this change the overall situation, though? Not really. You've still got the regime in Pyongyang. They're still developing missiles and uh, trying to get their hands on a nuclear weapon. And they still will always have that ability to send smaller conventional missiles to South Korea if the US were to enact a strike. So the fundamental problem hasn't shifted at all. But it does appear that China thinks North Korea may be one area where it can work with Donald Trump a little bit more by uh, ratcheting up economic pressure and uh, really trying to show its displeasure with Kim Jong-un's missile program. But if, as you said, the US did launch a military strike in North Korea, and the Trump administration has certainly said that a military strike is on the cards, that all the cards are on the table and that is one of them, how do you think China would respond? Well, I personally think it's quite unlikely. But if they were to launch a military strike, here's the first problem. As I was just saying, uh, North Korea is, well, Seoul, the South Korean capital, is about 70 k's or so from the North Korean border. If the U.S. was to launch a strike, then Seoul uh, would probably, uh, well, possibly would come under you know, fire from North Korean missiles. The U.S. doesn't want that. They've got 28,000 troops based in South Korea. So this is why I think a strike is very unlikely. But if it were to happen, Chinese experts and analysts here, they don't like to speculate publicly uh, too much on what the Chinese side may do. But one theory that I hear over here is that there could be a buildup of the Chinese military on the North Korean border. And if a US strike were to uh, lead to some sort of greater conflict, and if the North Korean regime were at risk of collapse, 
the, the PLA, the Chinese military, uh, may even cross over the North Korean border and create some sort of buffer zone on the North Korean side so as to prevent millions of refugees flooding into northeast China, but also to protect China's interest in whatever state would form after the North Korean regime collapses. This, of course, is highly theoretical, but you cannot for a second assume that China would simply sit by and watch the US and South Korea um, <laughs> to topple the North Korean regime, because China would be um, awfully worried about a, a South Korean dominated new government right there on its doorstep, which is a close military ally of Washington. All right, let's talk about social media, because I think that many people in Australia think that because Facebook is banned in China, that the Chinese don't use social media. And that's just completely wrong. You and I speaking on WeChat, which I would describe as a cross between WhatsApp, Facebook, eBay or Amazon. uh, And it's also increasingly a payment facility, much like a credit card. I think you can even hail a rideshare on it now. So can you describe how the Chinese use social media and in what ways it's different from the way we do here in Australia? Yeah, it's not just social media. It's also mobile payments. So uh, over here, things are really quite far ahead of, uh, you know, sort of phone technology uh, in Australia, at least in terms of uh, daily transactions. And that's despite having a, a great firewall of censorship. So let's talk about WeChat first of all. This app, I'm not sure if it will become a global app. Um, But, you know, with a billion, billion and a half people in China, almost, (laughs) um, it probably doesn't matter for the company that runs at Tencent whether or not it becomes uh, massively successful abroad. But certainly anybody who's connected to China or Chinese people in any way probably need to have WeChat. It's a a fabulous app, uh, despite the fact that it's probably compromised by China's government and that people who are are sensitive, uh, you know, activists and so forth probably shouldn't use it too much. But aside from that, for most people, it's a fabulous app. It just works wonderfully well. It's like Skype, Instagram, Facebook, Apple Pay. It's all kind of built into one app. And it is just the most commonly used uh, app in China. But aside from that, there's also things like uh, uh, Alipay, which is probably the most uh, popular mobile payment system over here, along with WeChat Pay. And um, because of QR codes, which never really took off in Australia, because QR codes are kind of everywhere in China, if you take a little tuk-tuk in Beijing, you don't have any cash on you, you just scan the QR code using your phone and you pay the $2 to the driver. It's as simple as that. And the thing is, everybody does it. I've seen buskers with QR codes uh, glued to the pavement. So people aren't really using cash that much anymore. Everyone is using their phone to pay for everything, even for small payments. And uh, it just seems to me it's a lot more convenient than um, what's happening in Australia. But part of that is, of course, the large population makes things here really convenient. You can say you're thirsty, you're in the office, you can buy a milkshake online and uh, somebody will deliver it and you scan the QR code and you've, you've got it in your hand 10 minutes later. But you couldn't really do that in Australia. They've got things like Deliveroo, but wages are a lot cheaper in China. And that's why this is partly possible. So let's zoom in on the news because social media these days is the place that most Australians get their news. Is that the same in China? Yes, yeah, it is. Uh, most people would be getting their news from their WeChat feed, which is similar to getting your news from your Facebook or Twitter feed. Um One thing I should mention, Weibo, which was hailed as China's Twitter a few years ago, it's got the same sort of mechanism of of Twitter. Um, Weibo, 
I wouldn't say it's anywhere near as popular as it was a few years ago. And that's because it initially emerged as a place where people could speak relatively freely. It was still censored, but there was a fair bit of vibrant debate on Weibo. Over the past few years, that's really been clamped down upon. And now a lot of people tell me that they're just not interested in opening up Weibo every day and seeing what people have to say because all the interesting people who were commentators online, they've had their accounts closed or they've been forced to censor themselves. So in, in some ways, social media, when I say it's uh, ahead of Australia, what I mean is from a technological point of view, the, the mobile technology is more convenient than Australia, but from a you know freedom of speech point of view, it's certainly not ahead of Australia. And um, when it comes to news, look, there are certain laws in place in China which stipulate that only um, state media outlets are allowed to provide news. So uh, aside from things that go viral, uh, conventional news, it's not coming from websites that are equivalent of, say, BuzzFeed or Junkie. It's not like that. It's still at its core coming from the major media organisations, even if people are reading it off their WeChat feed. What do you think is the biggest misconception that Australians hold about China? I think that Australians don't understand the idea of Chinese exceptionalism. So I think a lot of Australians still think that the United States is an exceptional state. It is the world's predominant uh, military, economic and cultural power. And all other countries are sort of similar. They're, they're not as exceptional. And, and people might think of China in that way. They might think of China in the same way you might think of Japan or maybe Germany. But uh, over here in China, and this is based on you know thousands of years of uh, tradition under under emperors, there's a belief in Chinese exceptionalism that uh, the Middle Kingdom uh, is the uh, predominant state uh, and that uh, traditionally uh, Southeast Asian neighbours were uh, tribute states and that the emperor held ultimate authority. And obviously over the past two, three hundred years, Industrial Revolution in Europe uh, turned the world order on its head. But what is underpinning the Chinese national identity is still this idea of China, of Chinese exceptionalism and of China being the natural leader state, not just of Asia, but possibly of, of the world, but certainly in the short term of Asia. So I think this really does influence uh, the way that, say, the government and uh, even uh, ordinary people here in China view their country in relation to others. And perhaps people in Australia don't really understand that when Australia deals with China. They, they sort of kind of see China as a big, important country, but they don't really understand how China views Australia. And to be honest, it views Australia as very peripheral. And so, you know, this really, I think, influences a lot of the interactions I have here, even on, on very ordinary things. When the Australian media, for example, wants to interview an academic at Peking University, uh, their first thought is, how would I talk to the Australian media? It's, it's really small. It's really out of the way. Uh, and so I guess Australians might need to at least understand this viewpoint which is still really prevalent in China uh, as they uh, deal with China in future. Bill, thank you so much for joining us this week on Fourth Estate. Thank you, Olivia. It was nice to chat over WeChat. That's it from us this week on Fourth Estate. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and on Twitter and let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. If you like the show, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. And I want to say a huge thank you to Isabel C, Starkey90 and GWJ who responded to my call to action and left us well-considered and extremely kind reviews. Thank you. Send me your address via Facebook or Twitter message so that we can send you a sticker. Catch you next week.